one night we had a meeting in a hotel where this psychologist would tell everything about the agency and then we we came in dressed as chickens dressed up as chickens nice. and we were dancing the birdie song and that didn't go very well yeah. or did it not many people in the agency liked that i mean a few of the young people were really laughing but some of the older guys they they didn't like that so much so we were fired and then uh, in the next agency Welcome to Creative Vengeance. I'm your host, Arne Stach, and this is episode number five. My guest this time is Johan Kramer. He's one of the founders of the legendary agency Kessels Kramer, and he has been a full-time director for many years now. We met at the celebration for 20 years of Heimat, the Berlin-based agency that I have worked for for the past five years, I guess. And Johan gave a funny presentation at the celebration and afterwards we tried to find a quiet space to do the recording for this podcast, which wasn't easy because there was 500 people and there was not much quiet space left, but we found a huge empty warehouse next to the party location and that's where we put two chairs and sat down to have a chat if you want to see how that looks like it's a funny picture i guess check out creativevengeance.com check the show notes also watch the film about johan kramer it's a two-minute video pretty funny if you don't know who johan is that's a good introduction if you know who johan is it's also a nice film to watch Please do me a favor, tell a friend about this podcast if you like it or leave a rating, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and if you want to share it on whatever social media platform is your favorite. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Here's Johan Kramer. Today is Wednesday, the 30th August 2019. We're at the 20 years anniversary celebration of the agency Heimat in Berlin. Johan Kramer is here with me. He's a guest. And uh, you just had the analog bingo. What was that? Yeah, that's right. Thanks for having me on this uh, podcast, by the way. Um, the analog bingo was just a, uh, a fun way of doing a speech at the at this celebration of Heimat. Uh, I talked about the... Uh, analog film and about the beauty of analog film and in between the films that I showed I uh, gave away eight cameras analog cameras from my collection that's very generous of you and um, I'm excited to see what the people are going to film with all these cameras I think a lot of people from the agency receive the cameras as gifts or as uh, rewards yeah luckily a lot of creative people want it so I imagine that they will use it and hopefully spread the love for analog amongst the people in the agency. Yeah, The agency is called um, Heimat, which uh, means uh, home in German. And you told me earlier you came here by train from Holland. You never really left home, right? You stayed in Holland for your whole life? Yeah, well, I lived, I lived two years in London. And this was actually two years before we started uh, Kessel Kramer, the agency I once uh, was part of. And uh, in a way, those two years were very important for me. So I guess uh, it was only two years, but they had a huge effect on 
um, yeah, the way I developed and uh, yeah, what what came out of me later on. So yeah, how did you um, get into advertising, or how did you um, become a creative? What is your background? Well, from a young age on, I was only playing football, and so my whole dream in life was to become a football player. But then, when you reach the age of thirteen, fourteen years, then some friends told me, well, maybe you're not good enough. And I start to recognize that as well. And then I thought, well, maybe the best other job is being a football journalist. So in, in a way, I was always writing. I was always writing stories, inventing stories, uh, writing stories about Ajax, my favorite football team. So that felt very logical to me and also to find maybe a job in, in journalism. So one day I went to the like an open day on the school of journalism, but unfortunately it was really a bad day. I don't know what happened, but it didn't feel right. And I sort of left that idea to become a journalist and then somehow I made a mistake to start studying law. Wow. And I did that for uh, three months and I was so bored. I mean, then it was actually the moment I opened the books. I thought, what the fuck did I do? This was really a mistake. And At that time, my sister was studying studying marketing and I was looking at her school books and I found a chapter about advertising. And then I read that, you know, there are also writers working in advertising. And since I was always writing, I thought, well, let's see if I can, you know, find a, a placement at advertising agencies. So for one winter, I visited, I think, at least 80 different agencies in Holland. Wow, there are so many. <laughs> at that time, there were a lot. I mean, I found them in the in the phone book, of course. It was still a phone book. And uh, I visited them all and, and offered myself for free. Just, you know, I, I said, well, I, I want to learn something and could you give me a placement? And uh, not one agency took me. Oh, so Too bad for them. Yeah, it was uh, depressing as well for a young guy. You know, I was like 19 years old and... Uh, luckily, as always, you need a little bit of help in life and someone knew someone at an agency and that's how it started. Then I got a placement and um, within a couple of days I had a, a, my own business card and it said research and development. <laughs> and I felt very uh, proud with this card. So I was showing it in the bars to my friends. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a research development uh, guy, which actually meant that I was just cutting out advertisements out of a newspaper. <laughs> so that's how I started. All right. And then um, you worked in London. That was how many years after you got your first R&D job in advertising? I think I worked like seven, yeah, seven, eight years. I worked in Dutch advertising and then going from one agency to the other. Uh, worked for some years at an agency called PMS YNR, which was really a great agency at that time. I learned a lot there. Also learned how to direct because the creative director was always directing himself. Uh, and I was also interested in that. I was also always playing around with film cameras. I was, when friends had a, a music band, then I was always doing their videos. Uh, if someone got married, then I was, would always make the video. So I was always busy with, with playing around with the camera. So that became part of me, like to write my own scripts and also direct them. Mm. And uh, at some point I met Eric Kessels and we got along very well and we both had the desire to work for some time abroad. And then 
we were lucky at that time Dutch advertising was really popular in the world and uh, so so even London agencies were looking for Dutch talent and uh, so we went over there and we worked in two different agencies over two years there all right what agencies were famous at that time in in Amsterdam or in in, in the Netherlands are they still around Because I, I checked when uh, like Widen opened and uh, when 180 was founded and when you guys opened. So what was the time before those agencies? Yeah, I mean, not so many of that of those great agencies still exist. I mean, BBDO in Holland, where I started working, which was really good agency, is, is sort of dying. I mean, there are maybe three or four people left. So it's really like a big dinosaur. And PMS YNR, uh, which was part of Junger Rubicum, is also not existing anymore. So, in a way, yeah, it also tells me that uh, you know, great agencies really they don't they don't have to live forever. I mean, they really depend on just the people who work there. Yeah. So great people make a great agency, and it's not the the other way around. Yeah. And. The agency we went to in London was called Chai Day, which also doesn't exist anymore. Of, of course, it's part of TWA in a way, but uh, uh, that was at the time was really an experimental agency in London. So for us, it was a great place to go to. And then um, after London, you returned to Amsterdam or to Holland and founded Kessels Kramer? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were at the first agency in London, we were, um, we were sacked, we were thrown out. All right, because uh, yeah, we didn't really fit into in the discipline and the culture of that agency. Um, that agency was always busy with uh, experiments, and you know they had a an intern psychologist, and we were always laughing about that. But they took it very seriously. And then one night we had a meeting in a hotel where this psychologist would tell everything about the agency, and then we we came in dressed as chickens, dressed up as chickens, <laughs> nice. and we were dancing the birdie song. And that didn't go very well. or did, did Not many people in the agency liked that. I mean, did, a few of the young people were really laughing, but some of the older guys, they, they didn't like that so much. So we were fired. And then uh, in the next agency, we met a guy called Robert Seville, who's now the, the creative director or owner of, of Mother. And uh, we got along very well, and that was a perfect agency for us. And we were intending to stay longer, But then in one month, in the second year, two really big Dutch clients approached us if we want to work for them directly from London. And uh, we thought, well, maybe this is a chance to start our own agency because I think we were already working towards that moment in a way because we were pretty stubborn guys. Um, were fired in the agency before. And fire, yeah, I mean, we were, uh, I think we knew what, or at least we thought we knew what we were doing. And... Uh, I think we needed to do our own thing. So that yeah. was a perfect moment to go back to Amsterdam and really start this agency. So at what point did you move into the church? That was after two years. I mean, the first two years we were also in a, in a building next to a church, a different church, by the way. Um, and we still had the intention to keep it small. We were, in the first two years, we were six to, to ten people. So it was still small. That was always the desire. And from the first moment on, we had... Uh, three ideas about what we wanted to be. We, we wanted to be a communications agency instead of an advertising agency. Uh, we wanted to work without account people. So we wanted to have direct access to clients as creative. And uh, 
we also want to work as international as possible, also with international clients, but also with international people in the agency. So at some point when we moved to the church, I think we had like maybe 25 different nationalities and we loved that. It was really inspiring to have all these different cultures within one place. Was that normal at that time in Amsterdam for agencies or were you kind of the first guys who um, brought in so many people from abroad? I think, I guess we were the first ones. I mean, of course, there was Wyden Kennedy, but most of the people at that time were coming from Portland, from America. Now, nowadays, I think 180 and uh, Anomaly and 72 and Sunny and Wyden are very international and have lots of different... Someone is breaking into our location. <laughs> but uh, they don't... Are they kicking us out now? Yeah, I think at that time it was not so common to have all kinds of different people from different nationalities working also on Dutch clients, which I thought was really nice because it's sometimes nice when you don't have a background and you don't know a certain company. So you, in a way, you are much fresher in your approach. So you were, yeah, that's a difference, I guess, because Widen, as far as I know, it's not many people from Netherlands working there and also no clients from Netherlands there, I guess. Yeah, I think they, all these international agencies are trying to get some Dutch business and once in a while they succeed, but it's very hard to maintain it uh, because they mostly work on an international scale. Yeah, they don't have any writers who speak the language. No, they don't. And uh, I think it would be nice if they would combine it because I think it's nice when you're having an agency in a specific town that you also work for local clients. I think it's it's interesting for the creators as well. Yeah, maybe they would stick around longer also. I had a friend who moved to Amsterdam and he got frustrated at some point because he learned the language pretty quickly because he wanted to connect to people who are from Amsterdam and But he said a lot of people that he became friends with, they left after two years because they just stopped by for a year, two or three and then moved to London or wherever else. So Yeah, then it's hard to maintain a culture. Uh, yeah, you already mentioned you didn't have any account people, so the creatives talked to the clients directly. So I guess your culture was really unique in that way and in others so um, you started with a small group of people and you said you wanted to be small or you wanted to keep it small but then you grew yeah the intention was to stay with maybe six people to ten people that, that was at least the intention in the first year but then quickly we realized that we needed more people so then it became 20 and then a year later it was 30 so we did everything not to grow but in the end you always have to grow a little bit and Especially when the clients got bigger, then of course you need more people. Uh, we did have a lot of strategy people, so they were also most of the time involved in the first part of the process. And then in the second part of the process, when you have an idea, or when you start presenting an idea and also executing that idea, then the creatives are very much prominent in this process. And then the producers are there as well, of course, to, to finalize it. So. Those were the three elements in the agency, like the, the, the strategy guy, the creative, and the producer. What did the surrounding, like working in a church, uh, how did that change the work? Did, what was the effect of the, of the place? I mean, at that time we were, and now it's, I think, very fashionable and common to work in an open place. But I think when I started working in advertising, I, I, I was always sitting in a room for a whole day. And it felt always horrible because you felt locked up in a way. 
And once in a while, a client came by and they were always looking inside. And it felt a little bit like being in a monkey in a, in a zoo. Like, you know, people coming to visit. And there was never really an interaction with the clients. Sometimes I remember when, when I was working in traditional agencies, maybe I met the client maybe three times. And it was always, yeah, there was never a real contact. So when we started, we always thought, well, let's change that and bring everyone close to each other. So that meant we were work working in an open space, so everyone was connected with each other. And I think that works when you are not too big, when you are with 30, 40 people. But also with the clients, we brought them also into this open workspace, so they felt also they were part of the agency. Nice. For example, we did a lot of work for Nike, and we always said to Nike, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that we are gonna meet with you in an office because you are about sports, so let's meet up when we are doing sports together, so we were playing football with them in the park and then also presenting. Or we, we went to Wimbledon, for example, and then we were sitting on the, on the stands in Wimbledon and presenting the next campaign for the Tour de France. So we were always finding ways to keep it very interesting for the client, but also for ourselves. Wow, yeah. And um, you, you grew pretty quickly and you became famous also internationally pretty quickly, but you did not really take part in the submitting to awards game well we did in the beginning <coughs> we did in the beginning and um, uh, of course because that's also how you are raised i mean when i started working in advertising i was told by everyone that you should win awards because that that sort of defines your career it's very important for you to win awards that's that's what they told me so you have this mindset that the whole year you are working on pieces and you're always thinking ah oh, this could be an award winner mm. We, uh, some There's people walking by, so yeah. open space, Johan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is also the disadvantage of open space. <laughs> yeah. So in the beginning we were entering for awards, but um, at some point it cost so much money because we were entering all the work because we, all, we never had the feeling that we would compromise on any of the work. We, we really loved what we were doing. So we thought, okay, let's enter everything. Yeah. <laughs> but at some point it's, it's a lot of work and it's also a lot of money. Um, so after a few years, we, I think we entered for maybe 150,000 euros a year, which is for a small agency quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, so we said, well, maybe it's better to use that money in a different way. So we had five teams working at that time. So we said to each team, you can have 30,000 euros to do your own project. You can do your own documentary or make your own book. Uh, you can decide what you want or you can also use it to enter your work and i always found it really nice that they all used it to do their own to do their own projects so yeah. for them it was not so important as it once was for us and we also had uh, one person working in the agency who did our pr and in a way the pr was much more effective in spreading our work to the world than What was her name? I think I met her. Was it a woman? For the PR. Mm -hmm. uh, the first woman was called Sabine. And she was doing... Uh, yeah, I mean, it also it really helps if you make campaigns that are, you know, are interesting to write about. But it was also a smart way of getting our work out in the world. And it, mm -hmm. it was much more effective than... Uh, Than sending it to award shows. I um, went to meet Eric in the church. I think it was uh, in 2007, I guess. You had already left? Yeah, I left in 2000. 
four. Yeah, and so a lady, I think it was a PR lady, she gave me um, plastic wrap articles from newspapers, I guess, about your work, and that yeah was very special design, the whole packaging and the way you presented it. Yeah, we always took a lot of a lot of care in how we presented ourselves, and also one other thing I remember is that. Uh, especially in the first years, we got so many students from all over the world who wanted to work with us. And uh, at some point we had to hire a woman who came in three days a week just to answer all these uh, requests. But we we took them very seriously. Maybe it also had to do with my experience of being a young guy going visit all these agencies and they don't give a shit. So we thought, well, if young people come to us, we at least we should at least find the time to you know give comments on their portfolio and if we don't have the time at least send a proper answer and one of the things we sent them was um, a t-shirt and on the t-shirt it said Kessel's Kramer was so stupid not to hire me that's nice and, and, uh, and you know that was a kind of a sweet thing to send out to students you know students from Uruguay or you know or uh, Italy who could not who could not could not come to work for us but at least had a little you know Uh, souvenir from yeah us. how did they find out about you when you did not show your work too much in the award shows yeah a little bit what i what i, I told you before that it was like a lot because of it was PR. internet wasn't so no it was much. coming up but there was a lot of pr in in magazines like shots and archive um yeah some of the nike campaigns got picked up easily uh we did a campaign for a, a budget hotel and that campaign was pretty famous uh, it was the hans brinker budget hotel yeah uh, still it was picked up by a today. lot of press and for example we we started working for diesel the the fashion brand and the reason they came to us was because of the pr news of the, the hans brinker budget hotel so yeah. but diesel is probably also a good example that if you do creative work for real projects for big clients people will eventually see it because they have also big media budgets so then at some point people ask themselves okay who who did this you yeah know? that's true it really uh, was a huge campaign at that time it was like so many billboards tv ads and it was very present yeah i um remember one funny story that eric told me he said that at one point he wanted to win awards so badly but he did not win any awards so his father was feeling sorry for him so his father assembled an award for him and gave it to him is it a true story it's a true or? story <laughs> yeah because his father is really a, a unique craftsman he always repairs cars and i think he in holland you have a you can win a lamp that's the main award and i think his father made like a, a lamp which i think is a beautiful gesture so uh, it's yeah. really sweet so eric uh, at some point got over it and uh, said okay it's all right we not entering anymore <laughs> yeah i mean i, I have to enough. be honest we we won a lot of awards so in the beginning it is, it is very exciting to go anywhere and then get these awards because of course it's like a, it's good for your ego and you know it's a, it's also a reward for the agency so it, it definitely has a good effect i mean i'm not against awards because i also think it's really important for the industry that good work is awarded and is well known but i think at the time we are talking about um, middle 90s i think there was a lot of emphasis on winning awards I, th i think a little bit too much and for me somehow the most important awards were the awards about effect of campaigns and for those we entered and we won quite a lot of them and yeah. they were useful for us because they 
they proved that sometimes really crazy or outstanding work can also be very effective. So it helped in convincing clients to go for, you know, different yeah. kind of work. Yeah. And how did you work with the people then? How how much freedom did you give them in that open space? Uh, uh, how involved were you with all the projects? Yeah, in general, it's also a little bit the same how I work as a director. I, I tend to give people a lot of freedom. So uh, I think that also works if you work with other creatives. You have to focus a little bit in the beginning on finding the right strategy, how, how you want to approach a problem. But once an idea is there, then I think it's really nice that you give people freedom to execute it in their own way. And also how they come up with ideas, I think it's nice to keep, yeah, to give people a lot of freedom. And sometimes as a creative director, you're not always, you're not always instantly happy, but when you have a lot of trust in the people, then sometimes you are also surprised and you get completely different kind of work than you expected. So I think there was a lot of freedom. Also when we worked with photographers and directors, we had the tendency to approach people who had never done something like that before. And I think that's sometimes the problem in advertising now that people are always looking for directors and photographers who, who have already done uh, you know, a campaign like they want to do. And in, in a way that's a very bad sign because you ask people to repeat themselves. And it's much nicer to ask like a, a car photographer to to photograph uh, you know um, a bottle of uh, perfume yeah because he will feel super excited and he feel he will feel nervous and it's a big challenge for him to do that but uh, you motivate people by doing that so that's what we all were always doing like always giving people different kind of jobs than they expected that's great yeah if you have the trust that people can do something that they have never done before it's also an honor for them and they don't want to disappoint you i guess yeah <laughs> they don't don't want to disappoint themselves maybe. yeah and also when we were asking directors we would never do a pitch we would never ask three directors we would always find someone had a good conversation and when we, when we felt like ah, oh, he's the guy who, who's, who should do it then we gave him the opportunity to do it and then you also feel much more motivated you feel part of the team instead of competing with other guys and wasting a lot of time in the process mm -hmm. how did you learn directing well I think I learned directing by doing. I, I, as I told you in the beginning, I was always playing around with cameras, always fooling around, making music videos. Um, in the beginning, when I was working in BBDO, I, I worked with other directors, of course, and, and you learn a lot from them. But when I started working with directors, it was quite common for directors to shoot the, the shooting board or the storyboard. So they would, as an agency, you would make maybe a storyboard with 10 drawings. And there were some directors who were just shooting those 10 drawings. They didn't have their own input. Mm. So at some point, I thought, well, if it's that easy, I can also try it myself. Yeah. Uh, Somebody then, else drew the pictures already. <laughs> yeah. So later on, I discovered that, uh, of course, it you know, directing is also sort of giving your own interpretation to a story. And uh, I, I, I really learned by doing. So I did a lot of stuff. I was... For a long time, I was writing my own scripts and uh, making a lot of mistakes, you know, but also learning from that. And I have to say, after being in an agency 10 years and writing your own scripts, I also felt the need to work with other creatives to to be surprised again. Because at some point you start writing 
yeah, you, you start writing ideas that are comfortable for you and you're not challenged enough. So when I decided to, to start directing full-time for other creatives, for other agencies, it felt like a relief. And also I really enjoyed the different ideas. So quite often I get ideas that I would never have thought of myself. Mm. Was there another reason to go into directing full-time than just the interest for that discipline or for that job? Was the agency getting too big? or what No, the agency was great because we were really successful and it was nine, ten years and we were getting all the assignments we were dreaming of. So it was perfect. I have to say it was a lot of work, but I enjoyed it. But when your name is on the door, you always get a lot of extra things. You know, you get phone calls from clients. Uh, if the receptionist is not well, she will talk to you because your name is on the door. So you get a lot of extra work, which I didn't enjoy so much. And also, I wasn't very good at it. Uh, but the main reason to leave was my love for directing. Okay. Um, in the year before, I did a, a documentary about a, a football game between the two lowest-ranked football teams in the world, which I called the other final. Uh, it was an idea I came up with after the Dutch team didn't qualify for the World Cup. I, I thought, well, let's check if there are any other countries are really bad in football. Yeah. And there were Make you feel better. <laughs> yeah. And really at the bottom of the FIFA ranking, there were two countries and I invited them to play a football game against each other. And uh, about that meeting, but also about the cultural meeting, I made a, a documentary. And that documentary sort of was the last push to to tell me, uh, okay, you should be directing full time. And I had long discussions with Eric about it because of course, yeah, he, he asked me to stay a little bit longer, but... I felt that I had to do it uh, right away. So, yeah. So you were you were sure that was the right decision. So you. Yeah, it was not easy because I loved that company, and it was really yeah, it was like a working family. I was very close to a lot of those people, and still am. Uh, so yeah, it was difficult to leave. But then the funny thing is that also when you start something new, then after a few months you, yeah, you feel like it has been your whole life. Yeah. I'm not sure how to describe your work. I think I haven't found the right word yet. I'm going to try to explain from my point of view later what I love about your work. But how would you describe the work that you do, the stories that you tell? It's always difficult to talk about your own work, but I think I see a similarity between the stuff I was doing when I was a child, when I was writing football stories in the, in the local football magazine. And the work I'm doing now, and now, of course, it's on a much bigger scale, but it's the same kind of storytelling. It's human, it has a little bit of fantasy, uh, and it doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, for example, when I was nine years old, I was I was sick one day, and I really felt horrible because I wanted to play football. But my mother didn't allow me to play football. But I found out that the team had to play Uh, a game away and it was next to a train track so i i convinced my mother that i could go out with a with a jacket on and a scarf and i would but during that game i would travel between the two stations so i would pass the football game <laughs> of my team four times and that's what the story was about when i wrote it for the football magazine so at least i, I couldn't play but I could, i could write the football story and of course the rest of the The story was invented by my imagination. 
And somehow I think that is a story that sort of tells what kind of work I make today. It's it, a lot of it is documentary based, but there's always a little bit of fantasy and yeah, like human interest in there. Yeah, I think what I also like it sometimes it seems like a bit of nonsense in the first moment, but then when you think about it, it's it's not nonsense at all because there's some some truth in that. For example, this one sentence the you just uh, before the bingo here you you showed the film about yourself and they they mentioned the 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 other final which was awarded the best football documentary ever in the Netherlands and then after that being said in the film but you comes the line yeah it's weird that it's the best football documentary ever because at some point at some time a better one might be made so it's funny but it is very true and it's uh, like uh, yeah that's these moments or these moments uh, in your work and these characteristics about your work is to me it's sometimes a bit weird a bit nonsense humor but there's a lot of truth in that humor well i'm happy you say that because um, if it was only nonsense it would be bad <laughs> but uh yeah maybe it's also a little bit of dutch humor i think in there i think there's a there's always a perspective from where where you come from i think and, and maybe it's also a little bit of dutch to be to fool around but also take it not too seriously mm. in a way so um you started directing and did you have a production company that you worked with from the beginning or how did that transition work from being yeah, the mean, agency I, owner to being director there was a the most logical choice would have been to go for an international production company that would represent me worldwide um, but I thought, well, I don't want to become a, a, a director who's traveling the world all the time, you know, because I knew some people who were doing that, like they were sometimes away from home for months. And uh, I was growing up with, or I had two daughters growing up, like they were at that time maybe three and five. So I decided that I want to be home a lot and also spend time with them. So I didn't go for that direction. I, I thought maybe it's better to find uh, local production companies in the cities that I love. So at that time, that was uh, London, Amsterdam, Berlin, New York, and Tokyo. And yeah, that was already a lot. So in those five uh, cities, I found local production companies who knew the local market very well and knew the local agencies very well. And I started working with them. So in Germany, it was uh, Trigger Happy, for example. Uh, small company but really loving what they were doing and I found the same kind of company in, in the other cities so until mm -hmm. now I really enjoy that because I have a good relationship with most of the people um, yeah you know you know what's going on in the local market so it's it's nice is there any difference that you can see between the scripts that come from Tokyo for example and uh, Europe yeah luckily there's a big difference um, Although the differences are getting smaller, I think that's also, I mean, nowadays I think it's fantastic to be a film director because you have so many tools and there's so many, yeah, so many media possibilities, so it's, it's perfect, but um, the disadvantage maybe from the internet and everyone seeing each other's work is that it all starts to look the same. And when I started in the business, it was still, Each year in Cannes, it was a surprise, like what is the new work from New Zealand or what's the work from Mexico? And it really had a, 
it really felt different. It really belonged to the culture of that country. And nowadays, you know, if there's a great commercial coming out of Australia, we will see it even on the same day. Yeah. And uh, it, it, of course, it influences everyone. And everyone looks at the same kind of work. And before you know it, you start repeating each other. So the differences between all the scripts from all countries is, is getting smaller and smaller, I think. Mm. Do you follow a lot of work from other directors or other all the agencies around the world, or do you stay away from that? No, I think I'm always interested in other in other people's work, so I'm, I'm always. But I'm not like a maniac. I'm not checking everything, but once in a while, I'm, of course, I, I follow certain directors that you like. Uh, but it's not only advertising; it's also, of course, documentary and uh, in feature films and in series. So. As a broad interest in 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 work, but also really enjoy looking at older stuff like you know films from the 60s, film directors like Jacques Tati have always been an inspiration for me. So I, I I look at new stuff, but also at old stuff because there's so much you can still learn from people. To be honest, I didn't know him, but Rich Silverstein didn't know him either. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure that if he sees his work, he yeah, will know maybe. it. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you noticed any difference when you saw the client as an agency guy and now when you meet the client probably the first time at a PPM as a director, is there any difference? Not really. In the end, uh, clients are also human. So it's, for me, pretty easy to understand where they come from. And I think it has to do with having had my own agency for a long time. So you know what motivates clients, what what keeps them busy. So I think most of the time I can understand them pretty well. Uh, but of course there are lots of different people. Uh, you know, sometimes you have clients who have a lot of trust, and sometimes you have these clients who want to control everything. So it depends. Because I I don't know if I remember that correctly. I think two years ago we shot the commercial for Swisscom together. And there was some things that we thought, okay, if we try to convince the client about this and that, he's not going to do it. Let's wait for the PPM. Let Johan convince the client. And I think it worked. So from my perspective, I sometimes have the feeling that director has more authority than the agency people sometimes. Yeah, and in a way that's nice to use as well. It's also good for an agency to understand that and also give sometimes the director the freedom to do that. Uh, from my experience working in England, I remember that it was really common to do that there as well. Like the directors had a lot of respect from clients. Once I was in a PPM for a project for um, for Capital FM, like the, the, the biggest radio station in London, and we were doing a really experimental commercial with uh, a director called Frank Budgen who used to be a writer, and he did some really great work. And uh, we were sitting in the PPM, and once the client heard that Frank B Frank Burchin was the director, he told, he was coming into the meeting, and he said, well, we don't have to do this PPM, because I love this work so much that, you know, just go ahead. <laughs> and which was great. And uh, he also made a beautiful commercial out of it. So uh, the trust was also, uh, yeah, it was right. Yeah. We shot a commercial that uh, was about football and so somehow it made sense to ask you if you wanted to direct this commercial and you did 
some other commercials about football also and of course all the documentaries about football related things um, so are you always looking for something that you're personally interested in when you get new scripts or how do you pick what you want to work on yeah i think it's important that you always look for something that that makes you tick or that inspires you uh, if you see a script and for me it always works very very fast if i read a script I, within within a minute i know if i'm if i really want to do it if i'm excited about it or if it's just like uh this is going to be really awful or boring then i have to i learned also to listen to that feeling because once in a while in the first years sometimes i was convinced by a producer or i was convinced by myself ah oh, let's just try it and most of the time it's, it turned out to be a disaster mm. so i also learned to really judge my initial feeling and yeah then it's nice when it's when it's a subject that really interests you And it could be human behavior, it could be a really sweet observation, it could be a really positive message, uh, or it could be something related to football. Uh, most of the time when it's really about promoting like endless consumption or you know some stupid snack or washing powder, then it would not get me very excited, to be honest. Do you get requests for these kind of commercials or...? Not so much. I think it it almost selects itself. So I think people know when to ask me. But in a way, it's also dangerous because you know when you are sort of typecasting someone. If if you know if people out there think, oh, I'm only going to ask Johan for a football commercial, it would be, yeah, of course, it would be a disappointment because of course I'm interested in other things as well. But yeah, I have done a lot of football commercials, and and actually the. The first one as a, that I did as a as an independent commercial director, the first job after Kessel's Kramer was also a football commercial. But the funny story there is that it was really a big commercial for Coca-Cola, like a football commercial. Uh, but exactly on the on the first shooting day, the moment I was sitting in my director's chair and sort of shouting for the first time, action, the moment I said that, sort of the sky sort of turned black and it started You know, the, the weather really turned bad and it started raining. I have never seen so much rain in, one, wow. in my life. So within five minutes, the whole football pitch was full of water. And even in the stadium, like the chairs were floating. Outside the stadium, the cars were floating in the streets. And then we, we drove home back to the hotel because the first day was canceled. So it was really a bad start as a director. <laughs> But it could only get better after that. Yeah. How do you, I mean, sometimes I ask myself, how did you come up with that image? For example, um, you recently did a commercial with Heimat for Das Handwerk and there's this one flower in the concrete on, on the ground. Maybe it was in the mood board, but I think you probably collect these images somewhere and then pull them out when the moment has come or how does it work for you? No, I think that that image came from me, and I think it had to do with uh, the idea that that um, this undertaker Erik Vrede, who was uh, the subject of the commercial for Das Handwerk, he he literally brings color into people's lives, in 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 the lives of the people who stay behind. And one way to express that was to paint the coffins, which I thought was a nice element in the commercial that we used. Um, Uh, a few artists to paint all kinds of coffins so that brought color to the commercial and then i kept thinking about okay how can you show life within something dead and you know in a way concrete stone is is dead and 
I thought it would be beautiful because you see it all the time in, in cities that, you know, flowers are so strong, they sort of, or plants, they grow through concrete in a way, or they use a little hole to come out. So it was more a little, you know, metaphor for color or a little hope, which is related to the subject, I think. Yeah, I don't know exactly the story of that coffin, but I think that idea somehow evolved or came up within the process of making that film, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, and that's funny how that process works, because I think it was an idea that uh, was part of my um, uh, interpretation, because um, I thought it would be really fun to paint coffins and, and, and give them, you know, a different kind of life, because why are coffins always the same? And they could be a really personal expression of someone. And And then I think, uh, the the guys at uh, Heimat got really excited about it and started building on that. So they made also other campaigns with this with these coffins, which I think is beautiful. And that's also nice how a collaboration between an agency and a, a director can be. Yeah, that's great. If somebody picks it up and then yeah. it's getting even bigger. So in the end, what was the exact idea about the coffins? People were ordering the coffins for themselves for later? or I didn't follow the end of that campaign, but in general, I think the idea was that that it allowed people to have a conversation about death. Yeah. And uh, and I think the, the the coffin was more a metaphor for that sort of a, it was like the 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 vehicle to get some attention. Yeah. Yeah, you said you didn't want to travel too much, but still when I follow your Instagram you're traveling more than most people, I guess. So do you work with the same crew then? Is it like being on tour with the band or <laughs> how's your setup? Well, I I, I Sometimes I work with the same people. There's one production designer I work with a lot, Ricke. I think you met him. He, he looks like a he lives in um, in uh, South Africa. No, or? he's no. A, that's the cameraman. Oh, that's the cameraman. That's, that's Wouter yeah. Westendorp, who is a cameraman I used to work a lot with. In the last few years, a little bit less because he lives in South Africa. And uh, with the production designer Ricke, I work with a lot, and he. He, is a, he looks a little bit like uh, ah, a yeah. gangster. Like uh, He looks like uh, Telly Savalas, right? Yeah. <laughs> and people quite often think he's the director and sometimes we leave it that way. Because he has that attitude. Yeah, he has an attitude. <laughs> But uh, in general, I, I think that you should always look for the right people on a project. So that, yeah, that can be really a different cameraman or a different stylist. I think it's always nice to, yeah, to also work with new young people. Mm -hmm. So I'm always open to collaborate. You just had the analog bingo, which is quite the opposite of what's currently going on because everybody, everything is getting more digital, I guess. And also for shooting commercials, it's not just one format that you have to serve anymore. It's like all the crazy social media formats. So how has that changed your work or the process for you? Yeah, for me it's it's okay because I think every story needs its own form. So you should always look at it carefully in the beginning. And quite often digital is the best solution because it has a lot of possibilities and the cameras are getting better and better. Uh, but sometimes analog can also be a great solution as well. And, and nowadays I, I see a lot of new young uh, directors of photography, cameramen who want to work with, with, with uh, film. And they they sort of re or they start appreciating it even more than they used to do. So mm. it also in film schools a lot of interest in 
in analog filmmaking. And I think it also has to do with the fact that um, maybe you think a little bit more before you shoot. Because with mm. digital, you can shoot for hours and you know get hours of material. But when you're shooting on 35 mil film, you maybe have not so much film left. So you have to think very carefully how you use it. So maybe this careful attitude really helps as well. Yeah, it makes the, the post-production process less painful because there's not tons of gigabytes and terabytes to uh, to choose from. Exactly, and also leaves a little bit of magic during the process because with analog, there are always unexpected surprises. Always you make some shots and, you know, it might be that some are disappointing, but some of them are also like happy accidents. You 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 see some magic in them. Mm. And it's... it's uh, that's sometimes difficult with digital. Also, the fact that everyone has an opinion on set about it. If you, if you, for example, take photographs with a, you know, with a digital screen, then you have 20 people watching that screen, and everyone has an opinion. When you're uh, taking analog photographs, nobody sees what you're yeah. doing. So there's also a little bit of more, little, yeah. There's a different process, and I think it also has different results. But today the TV screen has 16 to 9 and then they need the 9 to 16 for stories on Instagram and then there's all other kinds of crazy formats for banners and stuff. So does this affect your work a lot or? Not so much. I mean, in, I mean, I recently did a campaign. It was quite funny. I, I did a campaign for a Dutch bank who supports all kinds of clubs in Holland. And I was out for five days shooting in a very documentary style all kinds of portraits of groups of big teams and clubs and of course it's logical to shoot it in a you know in a 16 by 9 like in a white white uh, format uh, but then the client said yeah i also need standing images for uh, for social but it's pretty hard to uh, you know to because uh, then you have to do two shoots in a way yeah you have to make because normally you can sort of you know choose one shot that works in all formats but when you're making like team portraits it's almost impossible to yeah. to have that image so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't i just saw facebook came to the agency and uh, gave a presentation and they presented a setup where you would have a film camera and then attached to the film camera was a smartphone that was simultaneously shooting the same thing but just in different format smart guys <laughs> yeah i think but to to me it's 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 getting i mean the the more formats there are and the more stuff they they want to put out sometimes it what i think the downside is it's to me sometimes feels like it's more about the format than it is about the story which i think is the downside of that because you have to deal with so many different needs you know Yeah, I think so too. I, think I quite often feel that people are trying to get too much, and by by doing too much, then you lose a little bit on all the on all the specific elements. Mm. Uh, so it's better sometimes to choose to tell one story in the right way instead of making six average stories. Yeah, and, um, yeah, it depends. I mean, I, I don't think it's a good solution that that Facebook comes with the idea that that you have to stick a phone on your camera because you know it's a craft making nice shots it's not like exactly. sticking a, a, a photo camera on your on your on your normal camera that it will give great results i think it's better to give the agency the 
the problem and they will come up with a solution together with the director. I think mm. that's a better way of going. But you should be pretty good at doing six-second commercials, I guess. I sometimes have to laugh when I see what you're filming and posting on stories and Instagram. I think a lot of times it's funny observations that you make and uh, they would fit perfectly into those damn six-second bumper ads, whatever. Yeah, it would be nice. Maybe I should specialize on that. I mean, I remember from being in Japan that you only have short commercials there. If it, like 20 seconds is long there. So maybe, uh, yeah, I should learn a little bit there, go there. <laughs> I was judging at the for the film category at the New York festivals and the longest films that I had to watch were fr not from Japan, but I think from somewhere in Asia. There were so many films that were 30 or 40 minutes That long? That long. I don't know. There wasn't any limitation, I guess, in some categories. And uh, and they were branded or... Yeah, I think... It, I mean, it was like a... It, w it was a commercial, but some weird long form for internet. And I thought that maybe one big guy who owns the company and uh, has, the, has a say in what's submitted says, okay, we have this 30-second version, but the 40-minute version is even better, so let's <laughs> submit that. That was how I explained it to myself. Wow. So it must be uh, torture for you. In this, uh, or uh, was the film really good? I didn't get it. Oh, I didn't get it. for 40 minutes. I, I, to be honest, I, I cheated. I skipped a minute. And, uh, then, yeah. Yeah. So you're already busy for the next year? Yeah, I mean... I, I'm just finishing my new documentary about goalkeepers, about their loneliness. And uh, it was really fun. For one year, I spent like almost every weekend on a football pitch, especially on the amateur football pitches where you really see the lowest level of uh, football. And uh, yeah, it was fun doing that documentary because it, it had been a while since I was doing a documentary. So I now have the feeling that I will continue with... Uh, We're doing more documentaries and in between, of course, uh, commercial projects and whatever. You just showed us uh, some teasers, I guess, for that documentary. How, how long is the documentary? Uh, the documentary is 76 minutes. So it's okay. like a feature length. Okay, because the teasers were super short, I guess. They were just... Yeah, they are, I mean, in this... Very modern. <laughs> yeah, in the, in, the, in the film, I follow five different goalkeepers for one season. And of course, I also you have also shots of lots of other goalkeepers, but mainly I follow five different goalkeepers, like one really young one who starts to, to be a goalkeeper in the first year. I also follow the oldest goalkeeper in Holland, the amateur goalkeeper. Uh, there's a, a goalkeeper from the Syrian national football team who had to flee his own country and now is an amateur goalkeeper in Holland. Yeah. So they're all different kind of stories. Interesting. When are you going to be in Berlin with this film? I think it will be in Berlin uh, during the, I hope so, during the 11... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, 11 millimeter? 11 millimeter yeah. film festival, which is really football-based. Uh, yeah. Have you seen Ricardo's uh, football documentary? The What was it called? Uh, it was about the... Um, fan after the... The World Cup in Germany. Yeah, I've seen it, yeah. yeah. He, he won there a couple of years ago. That's... Uh, When I went there, the first and only time, yeah. Yeah, it's a sweet festival. Oh, uh, yeah. Another thing, you uh, did a small piece on my friend Ricardo recently. That's a project that you have been doing for the 
Dutch Art Directors Club or yeah it, 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 it was a project that started with my own interest in how creative people come to an idea I think it's always fascinating how, yeah. how we as an industry come up with something that is the most essential part of, of our work the idea and we don't know so much about it and it's interesting to find out like what works for you and how can you create circumstances to come up with really good ideas and uh, as i was saying in the speech that it's interesting for me to discover that most people don't come up with ideas within office space it's mostly when they are relaxing uh, when they are running when they are sitting on the toilet when they're watching tv or when they're lying in bed so they're of course, you do a lot of work within the agency, but it's mo mostly, I think, gathering information, sticking all this information in your head. And some somehow, the moment you relax, it starts to make combinations yeah, then in your head. Things connect that there aren't, yeah. aren't supposed to connect, but you yeah, have unexpected to... Unexpected connections. Yeah, I think so too. You have to get the input and work on a problem, think about it, and then a lot of times when you stop thinking about it, when you think, okay, it's no use to try more today i'm gonna open a beer and then the moment you open the beer oh, i have an idea yeah yeah and that's also the nice thing about um, uh, you know being slightly experienced in this work then you know it, the idea will come and i think for young people it's good to know that that the idea will come and that as a young creative you tend to overwork you spend nights in the agency and somehow they don't help you very much so sometimes it's better to switch off in order to get more ideas Mm. but it's something you have to learn throughout the years and get some experience and some confidence that the idea will come but for me it's interesting to talk with creatives about this process and make little films about it so i, I make them myself so it's, it, i'm really a man, one-man crew so i record the sound myself just like you do and uh, i film it on a on a small camera also to make the conversation very intimate. You know, we would be having a different conversation if if there was like a, a crew of six people around us, then yeah. it's always different. So I think that helps the process of, of doing those films. And it's also fun. I mean, that's the advantage of being a director that you can go, I visit so many interesting agencies. And when I was still having my own agency, I was constantly in my own agency. I was always in my own bubble. And nowadays I'm visiting so many interesting creative people that Otherwise, I would never have met. Mm. Yeah, that was the reason for me to to start this podcast because I realized being in one agency for five years now that I needed to broaden my horizon and I wanted to meet people from from other places and talk to them about their experiences. And yeah, I haven't asked the most important question then. So, Johan, how how do you come up with ideas? Well, for me, uh, walking is really good. I live in a in a village next to a forest uh, so i can start my mornings by walking to the sea because i also live near close to the sea so i do a lot of walking in this forest this forest is huge i lived there already for 10 years and i still find new roads and uh, quite often i do much more when i have like a one of one and a half or two hour walk i do much more than i would spend the whole day behind my computer so for me it works the same thing like i when i get an idea for a script and I have to think about how I want to film it or how I make an interpretation. Mostly I read the script a few times, then I go out for a walk and the moment I sit down somewhere in a cafe or at the beach, then I have the solution. 
That's so, right. And I, and somehow I don't know exactly when it happens, but it just happens during this walk. And I think it's also the running would not be the same, or cycling would also be different. I think it has to do with the pace of moving slowly, and also giving your brains a little bit of space to think. And you get random input just by looking at a flower or at a stone or whatever. Just yeah, I think it's a combination of all the experience in your life. Yeah. Uh, as, as a creative person so you've seen so many things and also you experience a lot of things as a human being and that in combination with the new project and you know i think those those combinations and the walking are sort of feels like a, a blender of things and the blender sort of gives a result in the end but i i'm not sure if that's 100 correct but i picked up somewhere that it would make more sense for kids to learn not sitting at a desk in school but to be walking or to have some amount of physical activity while learning stuff that would end up in much better results I yeah it's so. actually true and i think in a lot of schools like um, you know the free schools the, the steiner schools i think a lot of teaching is done in that way i think it's also interesting i think they did some research on mathematics for example that children learn more about you know what uh, of course they can read what three meters is but it's much nicer to step three meters because then you really feel what three meters is yeah so i think that's true i think yeah, it's much better sense. to experience it, and it uh, learn by goes moving. much deeper into your memory i guess when you have that experience yeah have you ever tried vr there was one film that i didn't watch that said johan goes vr or yeah but it was a little parody on uh, vr so it was more like uh, a guy sort of Uh, making a 360 move with his computer as if that would be uh, okay. VR. Now, to be honest, I have not seen that much really great VR. I mean, most of the time it makes me a little bit sick. It's the same. Like you you going, feel kind of seasick or? Yeah, I don't know. It maybe has to do with me being uh, 54. That can, can be true as well, but. No, I don't I, think that's the reason. <laughs> no, I haven't seen really great work. And it's the same with going to the cinema. And then you have to wear these 3D glasses. I hate that as well. Like, it's so stupid. The 3D glasses in the cinema, it gives you the feeling that you have 3D. So you can focus on what you're interested in. But you're forced to focus on what the camera tells you. Yeah. And then everything else is blurry. So that's... Uh, I don't no, like awful. watching films like that. I think it was in a exhibition that I was sitting on a roller coaster i guess wearing the vr goggles and then it was a roller coaster ride <laughs> and you did not really move so you, there was no wind there was no movement of the chair so that's when i felt really seasick M maybe we end up with agencies with treadmills at some point and vr goggles that have the beach of bergen and then people can work in an open space in an agency and walk and be outside <laughs> yeah but i'm not sure if it will be as good as um, the real thing no i think that would be very sad yeah Johan, that's uh, what i had on my list here thank you very much yeah you're welcome it was great to be here good luck with the podcast yeah thank you good luck with the tour of the documentary i will watch it cool <laughs>